God, we just thank you again that we can meet this way. We pray, Lord, you would speak to us from your word tonight. And we thank you for the opportunity to do this together. We pray this in your name. Amen. So it is Good Friday. Today's Good Friday. You know, it's a time when we remember Jesus' trip to the cross, his arrest, his torture, uh, his crucifixion at the hands of men. You know, we think of the sadness and despair present with Jesus' followers as they took his body off the cross and placed it in a tomb. You know, close to 2,000 years ago, people may have felt much like we do today. You know, confused, unsure, they're worried, fearful, hopeless in some cases. And just like the followers of Jesus 2,000 years ago, you know, we're wondering what to do in the light of our world. You know, in the blink of an eye, it's become very different. You know, many times through Jesus's earthly ministry, uh, his followers were convinced that it was at this time Jesus would rescue Israel from the hands of the Romans. And unfortunately, their microscopic perspectives of Jesus's mission and purpose were rooted in really what they wanted him to be and what they wanted him to do rather than who he is or who he is, who he was to them. You know, they saw the small picture of things while Jesus really saw the big picture of things. And so today is really no different. You know, we are wondering about tomorrow and next week, maybe even next month. You know, what's going to happen? You know, are we going to be okay? And they're all valid questions. I don't want to diminish considering our present situation. But tonight, rather than try to answer the questions like these, I really want to try something a little bit different. I want to try and get you to look further down the road. Think bigger and ponder just a little bit deeper about these things. And maybe you'll find that these plaguing questions that have been running around in our minds now for some time start to disappear in the light of the big picture. Now, sometimes the best thing we can do is just take a big step back and try to see things from God's perspective. So tonight, I want you, if you have your Bibles or an app, I'm going to have things here on the screen for you as well so you can follow along. But if you'd like to go to Revelation chapter 5, we're going to be talking about the big picture tonight. And so Revelation chapter 5 is where we're going to spend some of our time this evening. So let me set some of the background for this particular section of Scripture. You know, John is actually in isolation on the island of Patmos. Now, I use the word isolation because... We can identify with that to some degree today. But John wasn't there because of a virus. He was there because of his devotion and his faith to Jesus Christ. You see, he had been beaten, he'd been boiled, he'd been whipped, he'd been tortured. You know, John sometimes gets looked at as the disciple who lucked out because he was one of the he was the only one who didn't die a martyr's death. But John didn't have it easy. He still had torture all along the way. And here's John now forced to a small 13-square-mile island filled with convicts. Patmos, this was the location that the Romans shipped their prisoners for natural holding. You know, it would be hard to escape a location in the middle of the sea that required a 13-mile deep water swim to the nearest island. I got the map quest out and, and Google Maps, and I did the search, and it had been 13 miles to get off this island, just to the nearest island. You know, but in the midst of this situation that John was in on Patmos and his isolation, you know, he, while spending time in prayer, is given a vision of what I'm going to call the big picture. 
Tonight, we're going to look at a portion of this vision so that we can see the big picture of Good Friday. A Good Friday unlike any of us, I know myself, have experienced before. So let's read together beginning in verse 1. It says in Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So in his vision, as John looked, there was God himself sitting on a throne with a sealed scroll in his hand. But this was a unique scroll. It contained writing on both sides and inside and out. You know, this writing on the inside and the outside is believed by most scholars to be a representation of the complete law of God. Possibly the Ten Commandments, maybe even more detailed versions of God's requirements for humanity that he gave at Sinai. And this is a unique scroll because it's sealed. It was sealed with perfection. It was sealed with the mark of the absolute highest authority. See, there's no king, there was no prince, there's no kingdom in heaven or on earth that held the seal that was on this scroll. This was the seal above all seals. And it was sealed a perfect number of times. We might think one seal is enough, but to God, seven is the perfect number. God completes things on seven. Seven days in a week, the days of creation, seven years to complete a Sabbath cycle with debt forgiveness on the last year. And these seven seals on this scroll send a very clear message to John. The contents were the highest edict given. And it was full and it was complete. There was nothing more and there was nothing less. But there is one giant problem with this scroll. It needs to be opened. If you look at Revelation chapter 5 verse 2, it says this, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? You know, the scroll was a declaration by the highest authority. It contained requirements to be met, demands that must be satisfied for there to be peace between perfect almighty God and sinful human beings. This was the contract God has with every person on this earth. And I would tell you, regardless of the individual's desire to enter this contract, they are required to comply. God can do that because he created everything. Because this world, it's his creation, and it is subject to his requirements and his authority. You know, in the day of Moses, God gave the law on Mount Sinai. The contract with men was established. It was delivered. It was agreed to and therefore must be kept. The Israelites actually agreed that they would do everything that God commanded, committing to the contract, even though... They had already broken all of its requirements. What a deal, right? Already entered to a contract, and you're part of this new contract, and you've already failed to perform, and you failed to uphold it. And in order to properly perform under the new written contract, they were required to do a number of things. One of these, if not maybe the most important one, is recorded by the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 19, it says, When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. 
In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, you notice that Moses sprinkled the scroll with the law of God written within it in blood, the contract guaranteed in blood. You know, this was a life or death contract. Violation wouldn't be satisfied by money or hard labor or anything else. Violation was to be paid for in blood. And John, while he's in his vision, he sees the big picture during the days before and during Jesus' ministry. He's actually seeing the imagery of the entire human race's condition before the events of Good Friday, leading right up to the moment of the cross. Bound by this scroll that's currently held and extended out in heaven in the hand of God Almighty. And truth be told, everyone is still bound by the requirements of God today. Jesus actually attests to this when he states in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, he says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. You know, this is coming on the heels of people who are asking him if he would be getting rid of the law. But the law cannot be removed. It can only be kept or broken. Now, whether people like it or not, the scroll and the one holding it still have their requirements. You know, this is a universal requirement that cannot be bypassed or avoided. See, Jesus knew this. He knew that the requirement of this scroll was the law of God, and he knew the deficiency of any human being to satisfy it. You know, as Jesus was relaying this love and compassion of God daily to the people, he was also consumed with the big picture of what he was to accomplish. He knew the mission all along has been to deal with the real crisis facing humanity. Now, do you realize that Jesus wasn't interested in the short gains here? He healed dozens of people who eventually died. He brought back many people from the dead who eventually died again. Jesus used the temporary cures to try and relay a big picture message to people. He used the miracles to direct people's attention to the bigger issues before them. Now, although their sight had been returned and many skin had been cleansed, the reality is they were needing greater healing. They were needing greater freedom. The law remained over each one of them. And Jesus knew, ultimately, from a big picture perspective, the real mission was to fix the big problem, the eternal problem. Now, as John looked on in his vision, something happened to him. Notice in Revelation uh, chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, it says, But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. You know, in a moment, John is turned to a weeping man, unable to deal with the deep problem before him. 
as the angel called out, seeking anyone who could open the scroll, it says none could be found in heaven, on earth, or even under the earth, in what would have been understood to them as the underworld of those who had passed, dead souls. John uses specific wording here that should catch your attention. He states that the real problem was not that there were no entities who could attempt to open, but that no one worthy could be found. So what does John mean by worthy? Who would be worthy and what would qualify them as worthy to undo the seals and open the scroll? Worthy must be defined by the scroll's author. It isn't up for negotiation or discussion, and it isn't even the slightest bit compromisable. The only one who is worthy to open the scroll must essentially be equivalent to God himself. Perfect in action, word, and motive, and able to carry out everything written within and outside of this sealed scroll. Jesus lived every day in perfection. That's hard to wrap your mind around. That every thought, every action, every word from his mouth without violation, the perfect man, morally speaking, not a recordable sin or an error in his being. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, He became sin who knew no sin. Worthy in regard to John's present vision and this scroll meant one thing, no sin. Now, recognizing the condition of man and the hopelessness of sinful men, John is left weeping and weeping. Weeping that accompanies a perceived hopelessness that could not be removed. No one could be found all at all for humanity and John specifically appear lost. Now, when ultimate death sits at the doorstep and there is no one who can be found to deal with it, you see fear, you see hopelessness and despair take hold. So many years ago on Good Friday, the disciples, at least those who hadn't run away, watched Jesus crucified. In their minds, the hopes of restoration and the freedom of Israel were lost. This miracle man had tangled with the wrong people, gotten himself killed. They were now in danger, associates of a convicted criminal who laid lifeless before them. Their Messiah was dead, and it was over. But you see, they weren't seeing the big picture, and much of the time neither do we. You see, the scroll in the hand of God Almighty is hopeless for us. The demands stated are impossible for us. And when a person comes to grips with the fact that in the light of God's definitive holy demand, we are lost, they find themselves like John, weeping and weeping. You know, in Jesus' day, people would bring sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year, in an effort to offer payment by the blood of animals for their sins against God. Again, the author of Hebrews makes it clear in chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. He says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, 
It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Here's the big picture question tonight. Who's going to deal with the big problem? That problem being our wrongs against the highest king. We are consumed right now with dealing with this virus problem in our country and the world, and you know what we should be. But in the big picture, there are millions and millions of people tonight, this Good Friday, who are dead where they sit or stand or lay, not because of a virus, but because of their sin against God. What would happen if this world and our country took this invisible enemy called sin as serious as the virus today? And what would happen if we did whatever drastic thing it took to deal with it? I would suggest to you we would see a radically different world again. One filled with joy, abundant life, and peace in the midst of chaos and hardship. Fear would be overcome with hope and a surety of future glory and eternity. We'd all hold on to this place a little bit less. and We'd look forward to being with Jesus a little bit more. Do you see why John provided us with Revelation? You know, I'm convinced it was in the effort to tell us that the day we should all long for in this world is coming. Not the day the virus ends and we go back out, but the day sin ends and we're truly free and restored. And mark my words, when Jesus is on the throne, that's the day when everything will actually be okay. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. John is told definitively by an elder in heaven that there is someone. John's weeping was based on incorrect belief that no one was out there. Now, you notice John says that he couldn't find anyone, not that no one actually existed who could do it. Do you see how the small, short-sighted picture and the big picture are different? We think that just because in the short-sightedness of our future, we can't see life, hope, peace, and triumph, that it's not there. But that's just not true. Honestly, folks, we have no idea what's on the other side of the next sunset or the next sunrise. On Good Friday 2,000 years ago, the disciples were in the same mindset. All was lost. It was over. They couldn't see three days ahead. And therefore, life had come to a screeching halt before them. Why are we so quick to forget that God is not bound by temporary short-sightedness? Why are we so quick to trust our own sight rather than to put our faith 
in the God who sees the entire historical spectrum from the first day to the last, all at one time. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, and he tries to make sense of some of this in his definitive work, Mere Christianity. I want to just share a portion of this with you tonight. He states, Almost certainly, God is not in time. His life does not consist of moments following one another. If a million people are praying to him at 10.30 tonight, he need not listen to them all in that one little snippet, which we call 10.30. 10.30 in every other moment from the beginning of the world is always the present for him. God is not hurried along in the time stream of this universe any more than an author is hurried along in the imaginary time of his own novel. He has an infinite attention to spare for each one of us. He does not have to deal with us in the mass. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he had ever created. When Christ died, he died for you individually just as much as if you had been the only person in the world. He goes on to say, This human life in God is from our point of view a particular period in the history of the world. From the year AD 1 till the crucifixion, we therefore imagine it is as a period in the history of God's own existence. But God has no history. You see, from the beginning, God has known all about what would happen in our world. God was not caught off guard by our hopelessness and our sinful condition. God doesn't just see the big picture. He is the big picture. So my question is, are you seeing the big picture today? In the midst of everything happening around you, are you seeing the big picture? So here's the capstone of Good Friday's big picture. It's Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. It says this, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb, standing as though it had been slain. Now, notice John saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, but it was not actually slain at that moment. 2,000 years ago, if we had been there, we would have witnessed Jesus as though he had been slain, lifelessly laid in a tomb, no pulse, but he was not slain. Look at what John says next in verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So we have a lamb who appeared to be slain before God Almighty on the throne, claiming the scroll to which no one could be found to open it. Now, I want you to note something right here. It wasn't the strength of a mighty angel or the power of a certain being. It was by worthiness that the scroll could be opened. That is where Satan, and honestly many of us, really blow it by missing the big picture. It's not by the strength of armies and beauty of our being that makes us worthy. It's not by the power within our bodies and accomplished work of our hands. It is by submission, obedience, and devotion to God Almighty, by faith in Him that declares us worthy. That's the big picture. You know, the elders around John in heaven drop to their knees, faces on the ground, and they sing a new song in Revelation 
chapter 5, verse 9. It says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You know, this Good Friday is unlike any other. We're in our homes, many of us isolated and quarantined because of this invisible threat in our world. And in the small picture of things, it seems all is threatened and hopelessness abounds. The disciples, the followers of Jesus may have felt the same way 2,000 years ago tonight. Their hope was, as they thought, dead, hanging on a cross, the future uncertain and appearing bleak. But three days from now, everything will have changed. Maybe not in the world around them. Rome was still in charge. The Pharisees were still the religious leaders. Many people probably still wondered how they were going to provide for their families and where they were going to find their next meal. But within them, a transformation occurred that removed much of the small picture from their minds and replaced it with the big picture, the understanding of God's ultimate plan here. And today, you and I are here. We can experience the exact same thing that those followers of Jesus did so many years ago. Although Sunday may arrive with a virus still on the loose in our country and in our world, the economy may still be shut down and people wondering how they're going to make it. But we can have the same big picture perspective that those followers of Jesus had. That God's plan was not over. That his salvation and eternal security for each one of us lies before us. The fears of uncertainty and death can be thrown from our minds and hearts as we fill those hopeless places with the real truth. That tonight, Good Friday, and the events that took place on the cross, that our sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Your place in heaven is 100% secure, protected, and waiting. The direct relationship with God has been restored. Notice at the very end of that verse, John says, You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You know, in the very name itself, Good Friday is the big picture, if you think about it. How can a day filled with torture and death be anything good? Well, when you see it from God's perspective and from our new position before him through the blood of Christ on the cross, when you see the big picture it's a very good Friday. So I hope that tonight's been encouraging to you. I hope that you've you felt like you've got something this evening that you wouldn't have had otherwise. You know, we can all go back and we can spend some time this evening with our families. Maybe it's just us. But you know what? We can spend time with the Lord. We can pray and we can spend time with him in the midst of whatever's going on because he is close. And it's the events of this evening that make that possible. So I want to thank you for coming and spending this evening with me. We're almost exactly at an hour. I did not know that it was going to be almost like the perfect timing. So 
I want to thank each of you for just spending some time with us. And don't forget, we've got an amazing Sunday morning Easter service coming Sunday morning, 1045, here, right here on YouTube. You can come in the same place and you'll see it right there. It's going to go up and you'll be able to watch it. And we've got some special music. So we got some wonderful time together um, on uh, Easter. So I want to wish you all a happy Good Friday. If you if you can use prayer or anything, you, please text me. You know, don't shoot me a text. Send a message through Facebook. Whatever you need to do, even on here in the chat, uh, don't hesitate to reach out because you know these are trying times, but uh, our victory is secure. So I just want to thank you again for watching, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your Good Friday.